welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Haley Bannock. Hello, Haley. How you doing? Good, good. Let's get into the episode. So as our listeners will know, because they've listened to every single episode regularly and, and presumably have listened to them multiple times, they know that we are dedicating the entire second season of the podcast to the new edition the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology. And today we are so excited to chat with our guest about chapter 15, which is on study size and precision. And our guest to talk about this is Dr. John Huang. John is a principal investigator at the Singapore Institute for Clinical Sciences Human Development Program. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks so much for having me. So before we before we begin, we always like to get to know our, our guests a little bit uh, more deeply. So we have some questions that I hope you are, are game to answer. The first one is because it is an Olympic year. We have passed the Olympics, but it is an Olympic year. We want to know if you could compete in any Olympic sport, summer or winter, what would it be? And we're, we're inevitably going to ask you why. You don't have to be good at it, right? No, no, you do not. You're, you're just by privilege to get to participate in it. Yes. So Absolutely. like the first thing that would come to, to mind would be uh, snowboarding in um, in the Winter Olympics. I actually don't know what the events are, but in college, I was on the ski and snowboard team and I was very terrible. We had a decent team, but I was actually very terrible. But I think what? I, I give it a shot. What would be the what? What is your like signature snowboarding move? Finishing the course. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, always an accomplishment. Easy. More than I could do. That's for sure. Yeah. That is absolutely true. Okay, snowboarding. Fair enough. Would you Would you consider skateboarding? I'm not a very good skateboarder. No, I want to. I want to get a longboard. There's a lot of cool kids around here with longboards, and I'm not into it yet. So, so here's the question. Without looking it up, is skateboarding an Olympic sport? Yes, I know this. I know this. It is. How long has skateboarding been in the Olympics? This was sport? the first year. Wow. See, well, on a previous episode, I I insisted skateboarding has been an Olympic sport for a while, and I was very wrong. Okay, so second question. Uh, <laughs> would you rather live in a place where it only snows or in a place where the temperature never falls below 100 degrees? Okay, I love this question because I feel like I'm very uniquely suited to answer this since I've lived in Montreal and now I live in Singapore. Montreal where in the wintertime, now I could do some conversions. What, like 20 degrees Fahrenheit is like a short stay and then in Singapore where it doesn't fall below 90. Um, I used to think that I was I was totally only a cold weather person, um, but actually having 80, 90 Every day with a with a with a ocean breezes is not too bad, but I still think I'd go with uh, only snows. I do like the snow a lot. Fair enough. So I'm I'm pretty bad at converting. So 20, 20 degrees Celsius is like six hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Is that no, no, twenty degrees Fahrenheit. I already did the conversion for you. It's cool. You did. What was it? Twenty degrees Fahrenheit. Is a short. That's cold. Thing. That's cold. 20, it's, not, it's not that cold. That's okay. Twenty degrees Celsius though. What's that in Fahrenheit? Oh, twenty degrees Celsius is that's what like is that? six. In the 80s. 60, 60, no. 60 something? No, 16 is 61. That's how my dad taught me. I always okay. convert it that way. So it's, Close you know, 70s, 70, yeah, 70s, yeah. 80s, that kind of thing. Like 24 is my perfect Celsius temperature. I don't know what that is, but. I I recognize that, that we are the weird ones in using Fahrenheit, but I still always feel like people who talk in Celsius are like talking in code to <laughs> specifically so that I can't figure out what they're talking about. 
Um, I take it very personally. So, uh, I, I, I do appreciate Fahrenheit because the range of temperatures are ones that are important for us. Whereas, yeah. you know, 20 to 30 can mean a lot of difference. But really, those numbers are, are quite similar. So I'm with yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. Thank you for... Uh, I just had to learn these things. Thank you for supporting me and my fact that I will never learn Celsius. <laughs> okay, last question. Would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or would you rather go to the future to meet your descendants? So this is a this is a retrospective versus prospective cohort study that we're yep. talking about here. Okay. Exactly. Uh, absolutely the perspective. I mean, if we could if we could find the results of our studies in advance, I mean, our our lives would be so much easier, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Yeah, so definitely descendants and and hopefully they will be past COVID and whatever else is going on right now into whatever next disaster that we have coming. I got to say, you took that question in a direction that I don't think anybody um, has, has, has really gone so far. So that was well done. And so optimistic, whatever disaster is coming for us. We're going to be good at it. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I can guarantee Really? It. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Look at the last two years. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've done so well. <laughs> I think it depends on where you live, John. But uh, maybe that's just me. Okay. All right. Well, those are those are great answers. I feel like I, I have a better insight into the way that you think. And I'm going to use that to interpret everything that you say about p-values and confidence intervals. So let's 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 start to talk a little bit about this chapter. So this is chapter 15. And chapter 15 is a chapter uh, that is, you know, it's it's titled to be a chapter about study size and precision, which it is. But I, I think it's also fair to say that the majority of this chapter is about p-values and confidence intervals, which when we interviewed Ken, um, you know, it was, it was interesting to learn that one of his motivations for writing the original uh, Modern Epidemiology many, many years ago was his um, concern about uh, null hypothesis significance testing, which isn't exactly what this chapter is focused on, but it's a, it's a it certainly is a, a piece of it. So it's, it's interesting to have that background. So just to start us off, one of the most contentious and, and frequently discussed topics among epidemiologists, or, or as Haley points out, epidemiologists on Twitter, is the use of, of p-values and whether or not they are justified. And I have to admit, I have some strong feelings about p-values that I have expressed. Can you tell us how you would define a p-value? I think that the first thing to, to, so this is supposed to be a short definition, but I think the first thing that helps me frame it is that it's basically just, you know, some transformation of, of the analyses that we're running it represents something about our data. And I think for me, that's the first way to think about it. Um, and then the next thing is that it's it's what I would say is it's the, some say it's the probability. I would say it's the proportion of the possible test statistics that fall generally when we think about p-values is beyond or to more extreme than the test statistic that we've observed. Um, but as we go through the chapter, obviously we talk about other you know, forms, the upper and the lower parts. So basically, it's just some region of the distribution of test statistics that would occur based on and if we fulfill a number of different assumptions about the design of the study, what we're trying to look at, the analyses, the type of analyses, the test statistics that we're generating, um, and the relevant baseline or null hypothesis that we're testing against. And, and, and that, that last part, I think, is, is of course, is is, is 
one of the points that I think needs to be emphasized that it's it is one of the assumptions is the hypothesis you're you are assuming, which is inevitably the null, but it doesn't have to be, but it is almost always the null, and that is one of the assumptions. So, okay, so that seems to be a, a, a pretty harmless thing you just described there. So then why are p-values so problematic if, if it's really just what you described, which seems harmless enough? It's, to me, I think it, it's, it's that oftentimes we, we, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's very contentious on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And because there's a lot of different kinds of people on Twitter with the levels of expertise coming to it from a lot of different places. And a lot of the conflict that I see, and, and this I think confuses a lot of junior researchers too, is that people are coming at it from trying to get different things out of their, mm-hmm. their types of studies. And I think the biggest one is trialists or experimental people who have a great use for p-values, who have their, their assumptions and the thing that underline the, the types of tests that they do are much clearer than a lot of times what we're doing in the non-experimental and observational epidemiology realm. So, so to me, I think that is one source of contentious. And they, and these are ostensibly, I think, two groups of people who sort of understand what p-values are fairly well. So I think that's you know that's one divide. Uh, and then of course there's other, the other parts of the divide where um, you know some people don't actually understand what p-values are. They they try to attribute to them something. And this I think goes beyond this whole discussion of p-values and of precision and study size, but I think some people expect more out of a single study than a single study can and should provide, right? So they want some definitive answer about something. And in, in you know, very, very rare circumstances, is that is that actually possible? And when it is possible, it's for a very narrow question, right? You talk about the results of a particular trial, it gives you even perfectly run a very narrow answer about the difference between two two like groups. So so then let me probe a little further in this. So so I said, you know, I asked the question. I, I sort of framed it in terms of why are they problematic? Which, you know, obviously because I I think there are are problems. But so where do you fall on the on the spectrum of things? I mean, do you see p values as being as a a, a useful piece of information that we have just given you know, too much weight to? Or are they, you know, so confused that they are useless or something else? Where do you fall on the, the sort of the spectrum of how you see the usefulness of, of p-values? I'm towards the end of they, them doing, practically speaking, them doing more harm than good. I think mm. I probably fall towards towards that end. I mean, for the majority of the the studies that we do, but I will I will grant that the the people who do a lot more of the experimental type things and actually worry about things like replication, exact replication, you know, of the type of experiments, um, there are usefulness to it. The, the p-values and the test statistics in the long run, you know, behaviors of them work a lot better for those kinds of settings. And uh, I, I've even heard people who are really strident defenders of p-values, right, say, well, I don't even know why you guys are using them for observational studies. I, I mean, I've actually heard that. So so I think that, you know, there's some some distinguishing that, that needs to be made. Um, but what I will say, and from what I've seen, um, you know, the types of, of research that we do and the types of research that we, that I consult on or, or are related to, there's so many, so many issues with using p-values, using hypothesis tests, um, that really need to, to be unpacked. And I think it, I think it goes a little bit also beyond, you know, some of the things in this chapter. So that, that's my thought. So I, I appreciate that, and I, you know, I I would agree with you. I think that uh, I think that p-values cause 
more more harm than good, and that's why I tend to push back against them for observational for observational studies. I I do wonder if I go a little bit too far, given that more of my issue with p values is around them being used for hypothesis testing. But but you know I I, I think p values cause problems too. But it, but just to go back to something that you said there, so do p values assume randomization? I mean, can you have a legitimate interpretation or, or a valid interpretation of a p value in an observational study if you because you don't have randomization or or at least a completely unconfounded observational study could that then have a valid interpretation of a of a p value can we use a p value for for a hypothesis test in an observational study is that is that what the question is or or does it even have a valid interpretation as as a any number any interpretation it does right so we think back to the the assumptions about how the p value has meaning about the the design the null hypothesis um, and, um, you know, the, the proper control for biases and confoundedness, um, then the observation of this particular test, st- test statistic is rare and it is, has some sort of percentage. I, I think that that's, that's meaningful. And it's certainly the way that, um, you know, say, say for example, so a lot of the, the works that we do are in genomics or genomic mm-hmm. discovery where they, you know, I have more thoughts about this, but if you say that uh, the the assumptions are fulfilled about the distribution, for example, of p-values, in that these are all, for example, you have a hundred thousand, they're all completely independent tests, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's no confounding. If you can you can stomach that there's no confounding, and there's they're all independent tests, um, and it's still observational, right? Um, we just give some assumptions that that these things um, should, on average, you know, not be you know, not have extreme values that then, you know, they tend to actually, they do tend to behave that way where 5% of them exceed a certain threshold, right? So, I mean, I think, I think in certain circumstances it does, it's just, it requires um, a lot more to get to that point than I think that most people are either willing to put in or understand they need to. And I, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and I just think that the at least the worlds that I work in, uh, the the no confounding assumption is is never truly met, and therefore, you have you have immediately violated one of the assumptions that go into that p value, and therefore the the interpretation is 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 off. So, listening to both of you talk about p values uh, raises a, an important practical question that I deal with a lot, which is. When I submit manuscripts uh, for publication, I, I never include p-values. I don't do trials. You know, I don't include them in my work. Um, and without fail, I'd say most of the time I will get a reviewer or an editor or somebody asking me, where are the p-values? Why does your you know, table one describing your, your exposed and unexposed group, you know, where, where's the comparison p-value? Or uh, you're doing an interaction assessment, where is the p-value here? And I guess I'd like to ask you both as experts or, or more knowledgeable than me in this domain, what do you say to folks like that? Well, how do you respond to those? If, if I've given the confidence interval, there is no additional information that comes from that p-value, in my opinion. I know some people disagree with me on that because I'm, I don't want anybody to be using my data for hypothesis testing. So I don't, you know, you can, you can do that with the confidence interval, right? You can determine whether or not the null value is in there if that's what you are set out to do, you know, really going to do. But I, I don't want to encourage that. So I 
push back and I say, I've given you all of all of the information that I think is is relevant to be able to judge the precision of the estimates. And then I, you know, I cite a number of things like the the uh, American Statistical Society Association statement on p-values and and the Strobe statements and things like that. You know, I, I, and I and I have to admit, like I don't think I don't think that I've ever been in this situation where I haven't uh, been able to get past that hurdle. But it is it is a, it is absolutely a challenge. John, what's your your experience been? You've been able to to get away with not putting any in, just like absolutely. full stop. Yeah, full stop. Full stop. Full stop. Maybe, maybe I haven't. So, so generally, I, I say I'm 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 fairly happy that generally I don't get those, mm. um, oh, that's good. and other people do. I and I don't know whether or not it's it's like the 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 kind of because the the number of analyses and it's something that I've been thinking about as well. Um, uh, that's related to uh, the issue of of precision um, and and power, which is that. You know, when our goal is estimation, we're talking about this, when their goal is estimation, the idea is to present sort of a good story and a reasonable, you know, sort of illustration of, of hopefully what you're trying to study so that you'll have numerous parts, you'll have sensitivity analyses, you'll make it fairly clear from the different estimates and the different robustness checks that like, there's no way you could, you know, explain this pattern any other way, regardless of what the p-value is. Um, I'm not saying I've done that successfully, but I think that's generally my strategy in thinking mm-hmm. about it. And mm-hmm. when you're reporting it, it, and so then it doesn't become a question of like, well, is this actual point estimate, is it important or not? Or is this relevant or not? Um, and I think one thing that helps with that too is there's also a tendency, I, I guess it's something that we learned, right? Where you have like a regression model and you present three of them, right? You'll have like the the minimal, minimum, or the, the, the crude, the minimum and the adjusted. And I can see from like a reviewer's perspective, it's like, okay, which one's a good one? You know, which right. one's the good one? Right. Um, and that kind of thing. So so I think some of those practices lead to that. Not not saying that you, you do that. Um, I do but do that. Yeah, I, 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 tend, I tend to, when it does happen, I tend to say, look, look this, you know, particularly for table one, you know, the strobe statement says this, um, there's no, there's no benefit to it. Um, I don't believe a lot. I, I will say, actually, I don't believe the null hypothesis. So therefore, you know, like there's no reason if I mm-hmm, have two groups mm-hmm. and, and one of them is the older group and the other one's the younger group, I don't need to do a p-value on their mean or median age, right? I mean, like this is it's not useful. Um, so I use those kinds of combination of expl- explanations as well, I guess. I like that. That's I think that's a, a, a helpful way to think about it. So we talked a little bit in the at the beginning there about some of the you know the fact that we think that p values or you and I at least agree that p values may do more harm than good, uh, and I think that's in large part because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what p values are. So what are the what would you say are the most common misunderstandings that about p values that you encounter? Um, it's the absence of evidence thing. It's the it's the asymmetry, right? I think people have a general understanding, like when they're reporting it, that okay, I have a small p value, but maybe there's something off with my analysis, and uh, it could be by everybody is, is is very quick to say it could be by chance, um, and I say it's not just by chance; it could be by bias. You, you, you know, you 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 haven't done the study correctly. Uh, but when they tend to be higher, right, or when you have a p of 0.2 or 0.3. Um, very quickly, people cast it aside and say, okay, there's nothing there. Let's move on to the next study. Let's move on to the next analysis. And that's the kind of like, you know, dichotomization and thresholding thing that I think is 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 the big problem of the p-values, right? We no longer think about the design of the study or whether our analysis makes any sense, um, 
whether or not missing data drives these things or your samples, you know, you don't have enough sufficient power. It's just, well, the p-value shows me that there's nothing, nothing to pursue here. So John, is it, is the, would you say the bigger problem with the p-values is the misunderstanding and misinterpretation of their use? Or is it the problems related to dichotomization greater than less than 0.05? Or are both of them equally important problems that, that we have? Oh, good question. Okay, let me think about this again. Is it, is it, is it the, the interpretation of them that's wrong? Uh, or is it specifically the dichotomization? Yeah, I, I would say I would I would tend towards more the, the dichotomization and the thresholding. That's the issue. I think that people can get the wrong impression about p value. So, for example, you know, is it is it the p value or is it the the likelihood that we want? You know, for the likelihood curve that we actually want the probability of truth. I mean, in the end, oftentimes when we estimate these things, they end up being fairly close to each other. No, it's more of the sort of decision making process where. I've run an analysis. I've gotten a result. That result, unfortunately, is not the the the, the beta and the confidence interval. The result is the p value, um, and then I'm going to do some interpretations off of that. Um, and uh, so that's that's the one part. So we mentioned the 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 sort of asymmetry, absence of evidence, information. But I think it leads to other problems too. So they're like more technical problems, like post-selection inference, where I'm saying I got the the top hits. Now I can take their estimates. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to refer back to sort of genetic studies where we, we, we threshold, we take a bunch of interesting things and we say, these are the ones that we're, we're going to focus on. We're going to ignore all the other ones um, because there's this thresholding event that happened. Um, and so it leads to a lot of other statistical issues as well. So, so let me ask then, because you, you come back to genetic epi a fair bit and genetic epi seems to be one of these places where, you know, you're going to test a, a whole bunch of genetic markers, uh, you know, against the disease. And so if you, if you're thinking about this in a world of hypothesis testing, you've got a, a, a you know, a good chance that you're going to have some false positives because you're doing so much testing. And of course the, you know, genetic epidemiologists are very aware of that. And so they do these sort of, uh, you know, adjustments of your, you know, alpha adjustment type things to counter that. But that of course has, has implications for, um, for, for power and, and, and type two errors, but leaving that aside for the moment, um, the, the, a lot of the historically P values as they were developed came largely, as I understand it, in terms of the way we think about them today from agricultural statistics. And they talk about this, uh, in the chapter where, you know, you're, you're trying to make decisions. You know, I, I always know nothing about farming. So I just always make stuff up and say, okay, we're trying to decide, do we plant soybeans or do we plant, you know, wheat in this soil? And so we can run these experiments and, and, you know, break up the plots of land and do these experiments. And then we want to make a decision at the end, what we're going to actually do is plant wheat or plant soybean based on which one, you know, has the, the, the bigger crop yield, let's say. Um, and I think the argument in in medical statistics or in epidemiology is that that's not how we operate. We don't we don't do a single study and then make a decision. Do you buy that argument that that we don't uh, use that we don't need p values in the same way because we're not doing uh, using them for immediate decision making in the same way that agricultural statistics needed to? Yeah, there was an interesting passage in in the chapter, and I know that that's sort of arises from from the history of uh, uh, of these statistics. But I think I mean I, I would distinguish 
you know, what we should be using them for, which is what you just described, which is that, you know, we're doing these studies in series, then we sort of collect the information together, make decisions based on a number of different factors, including cost benefit analysis and mentions in the book as well. Um, but I think in reality, these are leading to decisions, right? Not, not, not necessarily even decisions from a clinician or a policymaker, but in terms of, you know, what to do research on next. Like I, like I just said, when, when, you know, when a student or, or so, um, a, a clinician wants to do a quick study, they find that there's nothing going on there, even though there might be a lot of a priori reason to, or biological reason to continue, you know, inquiring upon this, maybe control better for confounders and that sort of thing. And they just cast it aside. Similarly, if you don't, you know, if you don't put in the p-values, they don't, they're not sufficiently small, you don't get it published, or you don't get it into a grant. Those are decisions that are happening. So when I read that chapter, that was my first thought was that, yeah, I mean, they don't necessarily, it's not necessarily how we decide on interventions, but they do like these, this thresholding does end up right affecting decisions later on because we've we've cut off a lot of different research that we're not doing. I, I would agree with that. I actually think it's a really interesting point. And I, you know, I always say to my students and I, I, you know, I suspect a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but my, my, my feeling is like, you want to go and, and, you know, test a, a, a bazillion things against a bazillion different outcomes and use, you know, sort of a, a, a some p-value threshold as your screen for where you're going to go next. And you're just using that as a, a hypothesis generating activity to sort of see like where is a fruitful place for us to investigate to, to me go for it i mean if we find things are associated we want to know why as long as we don't you know give that a a, a, a meaning that it doesn't have and say well because we found a, a low p-value that means there is an effect but we're just using it as a screening tool i say you know I, that's fine by me but i think the problem is it's really difficult to convey that in a world in which so much meaning is already already placed in in what p values are but Matt, doesn't that raise an issue that John uh, mentioned earlier, which is this issue of asymmetry? So you are ascribing some kind of importance to to getting a low p-value, but you're not ascribing a similar level of importance to a higher p-value. So just because it's a p of 0.3, um, that's telling you in your scenario that you know the student or whomever you know shouldn't go on to investigate that further. Why is that any less important than a P of 0.05, um, you know, in, in the scenario you're describing? Because, uh, and, and I'm, I'm open to the idea that I'm, I'm wrong about this, but for me, it's because the, the, the logic that John described and that you just reiterated to me makes more sense when we are thinking about, I have a hypothesis in mind. I have a reason to believe there is, uh, you know, a possibility of an association here that is reflecting causation. Therefore, I'm going to do a study specifically designed to test that. If I do, you know, if my, my, my study just doesn't have to be happen to be large enough, I don't want to throw away good information just because I didn't hit a, a particular significance level. But that's in the situation where I, you know, I, I have reason to believe that there is a somewhat decent chance there's going to be an effect here. I'm, I'm referring to the situation where I'm just using the p-value as a, a screening tool to figure out what I should even be be thinking about, um, so I see those as as different. I don't know, John. Do you do you share that or or no? See it I mean, I, I said no, but I actually meant yes. I, I feel I feel I I feel I feel exactly the same way. Uh, in that, you know, we talk very. I think you know, we talk very precisely about what the p value is and how it's appropriately used. 
to do to to test so that in the long run it has certain properties. But it is very much in this sort of more casual way uh, that many people use it, and the many people appreciate sort of like the idea of multiple testing. Um, so so again, I'm in apologies to harp on this, but I, I you know this is a lot of what I've been thinking about is you know this is why you know when you're doing these 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 large tests of 100 200,000 hypothesis tests um there uh, and, and of course obviously lots of people working on it in lots of different way but by and large people are sort of okay with sort of very casual ways of doing like a false discovery rate um and and they don't for example they're not worried that every single one doesn't meet the 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 null hypothesis um, or that there isn't, um, there isn't, or there isn't confounding for certain measures um, in that list of hypotheses than others. And the reason for that is because they do, like just as you say, they just want some way of cutting. They, they can't report all 100,000, you know, associations in their in their study. So they just want a convenient way of sort of pruning that down, even if it doesn't necessarily fulfill the 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 appropriate assumptions for the distribution of test statistics. But now I think as, you know, computational power increases and more sophisticated analyses can be done where people can just sort of like, uh, so in, in, in the case of genes, like aggregate them into different networks, do data reduction. I think people are much more willing to just like describe what they found. It's like, look, we had an interesting association with this network and they're less, less concerned about things like multiple testing. And I think it's because it's just sort of the casual use of multiple testing just to get it down to a manageable size rather than any any strong, um, you know, belief. And this is the the appropriate long run behavior of these of these tests. And I'm going to get in a lot of trouble because I think probably just pissed off a lot of people. But this is this is how I feel about it. I think. Well, 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 so this is where I think we get into trouble, though, because I, you and I are in a, seem to be in agreement on how that could or or should be used. The problem, I think, becomes that, you know, you and I are, are saying just use it as a, a kind of a screening measure. Um, you know, don't put any serious weight into it at that point. It's just a screening tool. But in, in the world we live in, which gives so much value to uh, so much ascribes so much meaning to statistical significance. You know, it's, it, it, it feels to me a little naive to just put it out there and say, here's like we don't ascribe any meaning to it as if we don't know that the world is going to ascribe meaning to it that we don't think should be there. Um, I, I used to feel that way. I used to feel like as long as I, you know, as long as I just explain what I'm doing, I'm clear and, you know, I have a, a clear conscience. But the truth is I know full well what, what what's going to happen to that. And so do I have a responsibility to to not put that out, you know, put out there things that are really just hypothesis generating? I, Wait, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, may, have, I may have misspoke um, or... or... I think that that's the way it's being used, sort of very casually for screening that sort of thing. I actually think that, you know, obviously there are people working on more principled ways to take, for example, background knowledge about what should mm. be sort of an unconfounded estimate, incorporate that into their hypothesis test. So there's actually meaningful multiple testing correction. So there are people working on that. Um, and it's, it's a little tangential to some of the work that I'm doing as well. I think that what I'm saying is that I think that if we were really serious about the the multiple testing in that way that should be the only thing that we're doing is to make sure that for example every single one of these tests are done in a way that fulfills all the assumptions uh, but it's not the way that it's being done it is more casual 
Yeah, and I, I should also say I, I have very mixed feelings about this whole idea of multiple testing, period, because I'm not a fan of testing. So therefore, yeah. if you're not testing, multiple testing becomes... It's not that it goes away. I mean, you still you still have to think about the fact that, um, you know, if you're doing lots and lots of, of um, comparisons, you know, you, you, things can go wrong, quote unquote, by chance. But you think about it in a, in a very different way. So I think this question will reveal my um, lack of sophistication and naivete on this topic. Um, you know, but but listening to you guys describe this stuff, I guess Matt in particular, um, you know, it, it's such a slippery slope in my mind because, you know, when you're saying, you know, you just want to learn more about the topic, have an easy decision, what's the difference with using it in that context versus trying to do predictive modeling for risk factors or using backwards and forward selection to determine what should be included in your statistical model, you know? So in hearing you describe that, if I were, well, me or new to the topic, it becomes difficult to understand where it's okay and where it's not okay to, to be using these metrics. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I don't, I don't include them in any capacity when I'm working with students or in my, my papers to the extent that, that I can. So I guess I'd like your thoughts on, on that kind of slippery slope issue. I, I'll give mine, which is that I, I think that you're talking about two very different things. I, the first one you talked about is, is, you know, risk factors, which, as we've talked about a number of times in this program, I don't know what that means, and I don't know what people mean when they say, "I, you know, I'm not interested in causation. I just want to know about risk factors." I don't even know what that means, so I can't give good advice, you know, in that particular scenario. But when you're talking about things like forward and and backward selection procedures, you know, there we're in a position, I think, where we're we're trying to actually assess cause and effect. We're not in this sort of I'm just trying to get some information on where I should be looking for hypotheses to to actually be testing. Um, there, I think you need a very principled approach to what you consider to be confounders that is not driven by p-values or significance, but is driven by your understanding of the of the problem and the the causal diagram that you would draw out to represent that. So there, I think there's no role for you know procedures like backward or forward selection or any p-value driven approach to what to include in a model. I don't, John, I don't know if you would agree with that. Definitely. And I, and I, I will say, and going back to, to the last sort of talking point is that, I mean, the, the big thing, right, is to work with, with, work with statisticians and consult with statisticians that are specifically know how test statistics and certain estimators perform for the type of question that you're asking. Um, and so for the issues of like, post-election inference, there's a lot of smart biostatisticians that are working on that to make sure you don't inflate, um, you know, your your type one error and that sort of thing. And so you you work on that sort of thing. Similarly, with the issue of, of prediction, right? Um, it's another set of, of, of biostatisticians that are that are quite good at that and are quite strident, particularly on Twitter, about mm-hmm. um, yes. what you yeah. should or should be shouldn't be doing. Um, but I, I totally agree with 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 Matt, which is that you know, when we're talking about causation, we're trying to identify a very fairly specific, um, you know, correlation under fairly specific conditions. Whereas for prediction modeling, we're just trying to capture all the, the variance that we can in a repeatable way that, that we can generalize to other populations. So, I mean, different tasks, right? So, I, so I think, you know, the key thing about is, is to, is to find the, the sort of 
right approach to that 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 problem that 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 is demanded by the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mm-hmm. appreciate that, and I think there's such an important role for um, new sources and new understandings on this topic as we teach it to our students. You know, I think that some of the texts that we use, not modern epi, but but other texts and and other resources fall back on this kind of p-value idea and changing those ideas in our teaching, I think is fundamentally important, um, you know, to, to change how our literature is developed. I, I would agree. Um, so I want to shift a little bit because we don't have a lot of time left to talking a bit about confidence intervals, because I think it's another really important topic that we need to, to think a lot about, because I think a lot of us feel like confidence intervals are much better approach than than p-values. And so I'm going to read you the, the definition that, that they give of a confidence interval in the, in the text. They say, if the underlying statistical model is correct and there is no bias, then a confidence interval derived from a valid test will, over unlimited repetitions of the study, contain the true parameter with a frequency no less than its confidence level. Now, those of us who like confidence intervals are often also... Um, feel it's important that people understand what a confidence interval is and what it isn't. I mean, a confidence interval to me is a much better way to to display data than a p-value, but it doesn't get out of of, of all the problems that the the p-values have. Um, And so for starters, it contains this idea that the will over unlimited repetitions of the study contain the true parameter. When do we ever do, okay, we never do unlimited repetitions, but we do we ever actually even repeat studies in large numbers in, in exactly the same way, such that these coverage probabilities, as they talk about, would ever have any real meaning? What's your, what's your take on that? Okay, first, I think it's, it's a, this is a fairly large question. And yes, I'm it is absolutely going to get in trouble. Uh, because I'm, that, I'm, I'm that's neither, why I want you to answer it. Neither me. a philosopher of statistics nor somebody who derives or proves estimators. But let's give it a shot, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I first got, grasp one of the one of the big issues of it, and we have to sort of explain confidence intervals in the right way, in that we don't actually know what the true parameter is. Therefore, we're drawing a bunch of things, and hopefully, that uh, that if our other assumptions about what we observe is linked to this estimator in the correct way, then this estimator will have this property. Um, I don't think that it is probably in, in that sense, I don't think that it's problematic, right, that we don't actually repeat this study for, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that fulfilling those criteria that this, this estimator is unbiased is usually the biggest problem, right? So like you really all bets are off about the coverage probabilities if you don't get those parts right. And so we're usually safe because we're never going to get that right or or rarely going to get that right. right. But let's say that we do, right? And the estimator is correct. Basically, what it's saying is that if we have another data generating process that's exactly the same, we should expect that this estimator performs the same on that. And and this is what we show. And this is what they show in, you know, when when we do simulation studies, for example. That's how we demonstrate is draw basically from the same distribution. Mm -hmm. We get the estimator. We see the properties and we know that it works. Now, we're never going to prove that that data generating property is correct, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, nor nor that if we ran this study again, we would get the exact same you know, data generating mechanism. So I don't think it's necessarily problematic. 
it uh, it just sort of hides the fact that the biggest things are in the in the bias. The biggest issues are in the bias. I think that 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 feels right to me. So then, those of us who do you know spend a lot of time thinking about this and 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 you know, teaching, uh, trying to help people understand what confidence intervals really are and what they really are not, focus a lot on this idea that the ninety five percent, assuming we're talking about a ninety five percent confidence interval, the ninety five percent refers to the method and not the interval. This idea that you know my ninety five percent of my intervals under the unlimited repetitions will contain their true result. It's not that there is a ninety five percent probability that my interval contains the true result. And students, I find, and I, I definitely remember being in this position, have a lot of trouble with that, even when they can grasp it logically, um, because it's it's it feels like. Why can't you go from saying I have a method that is right 95% of the time, right, meaning it includes the true value. Why can't I just think of my study as one random draw of all of those infinite repetitions and therefore it should have a 95% chance of containing the truth? If you feel like providing any insight on that description, go for it. But my, my real question is, do you think we spend too much time focusing on trying to explain this to people and, you know, sort of the approximations that people are doing with their understanding of saying, I'm 95% confident the truth is in there is, is good enough? Or do you think we really do need to, to hammer this home for people? And if so, why? The, the, la- the last part of your explanation or, or, or your scenario where the student says, well, if this is a random draw, why not? Why is it not 95% kind of threw me off? Because up until that point, I was I was pretty sure about my answer about, you know, whether whether or not it's a big deal that we need to explain it. I don't I, I don't know. I don't have a, uh, I don't think I have a good answer for it. But I do think that it is important um, to to discuss that the confidence interval is the property of the method or the estimator, which is not emphasized enough, I think, mm-hmm. and, and that it can vary uh, and that the performance depends on how well that the sort of estimator is suited to uh, the data that you have, uh, the the hypothesis that you have it. And so I think that that specific part of it, I, I think, doesn't get emphasized enough that it's just sort of a natural property where we just construct some some random things based based on how we ran our regressions and everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to mean fall within 95 percent um, when when that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think, you know, in, t- in terms of the property of the estimator, but then also in terms of, you know, all the, the, the things about the you know, being unbiased has to be correct for, for that to, to give good properties. Um, I, I do think that that's important. So, so the way it's been explained to me, and I, I, I like this explanation, but I also, I, I don't know that I fully, you know, fully get it, is that, that the, the reason why we shouldn't just think of, uh, you know, even if my study is, is a, a random draw, um, I can't think of it as having 95, you know, I'm 95% confident is because, the the true value is either in there or it isn't. And the method gets it right 95% of the time, assuming you've met all the assumptions. That's, we never do that, but let's leave that aside. Let's say we did. But it's, you know, it's sort of equivalent to saying, you know, I have a a, a one in a, a million chance of, of winning the lottery before you draw the, the numbers. But after the lottery, the numbers are drawn. It makes no sense to say, you know, there's a, a 95% chance or sorry, a one in a million chance that I, I won the lottery. I either did 
or did not win the lottery. And so once you calculate the interval, you know, the probability of containing the truth is either zero or one. But that, that's how I would have explained it as well. That's why I said the last part of, of your thing threw me because that's how I'd explain it as well. Same thing with the p-value, right? We have this con- con- correspondence between the p-value. We're like, our, our hypothesis is either true or not. And it's really unrelated to how we've observed or, or computed this right now. That's why we give it a probability distribution. Um, and so for the confidence interval, yeah, I agree that it's either it's either in or or not in, and the long run probabilities of it is a guarantee hypothetically. Given that we, in observational studies at least, violate many of the underlying assumptions at least to some degree, how do you think about interpreting the the confidence limits? How do you? I mean, what advice do you give to people, or how do you? describe them when you put them in your papers we don't tend to describe them though do we <laughs> we just say that they're they're in there and this is our representation of variability of our estimate it's a fair uh, point we, we, we probably don't but how, don't. how should we God, you could give the definition that's in in the book but i don't know what people are gonna say about that so, so, so fair enough i mean that that would be sort of a how to interpret the the interval itself but i just yeah. mean just in sort of thinking about the those limits, I mean, I, you know, do you put any qualifiers on them? Do you think about them as, you know, minimum amounts of, of error or variability? Do you think about them as uh, measures of, of, of precision? Or do you think about them in terms of, I assume not, in terms of, you know, hypothesis testing is the is the null value in there? I know you yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. that, but yeah, good point. Sort of yeah. number of different ways you could you could you could encourage people to look at those limits. So one thing that I, I did actually like about the chapter was it, it does say, right, that a good way to think about the, the confidence intervals is it is the minimal amount of uncertainty actually that, that you have. Uh, given given everything is great and sampling is your only issue, this is the minimal amount. Of course, biases and other kinds of things increases. So I think that's a that's a great way to think thinking about it. I'm sort of torn because you know it's it, depending on your estimators, there's a transformation of your standard errors, and that will give you some idea of the uh, of your precision and what, you know whether or not the bulk of, for example, your observed data falls within a certain range. Is that of interest to you? I mean, I think that's that's sort of generally the the intuition that we have is you know if it falls, for example, um, in in a range that's that's uh, you know biologically or clinically important or interesting, then that's helpful. I don't I don't know any other better way, I guess, of, of discussing that. Yeah, I, I think it's a really difficult question because I, I, I think it's something that we, you know, I, I focus a lot on trying to make sure my students understand the limits of, of confidence intervals, even though I push them to use confidence intervals over p-values because I want them to to understand that, you know, switching to confidence intervals has advantages, but it doesn't absolve us of doing the hard work of really trying to understand what these intervals mean. And I encourage them to focus very much on using them to to think about precision and compatibility of the data with varying hypotheses given the assumptions, but not to put any kind of magical thinking to or, or, or ascribe any any overly important meaning to the to the limits themselves. And mm. You know, it's 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 not a perfect solution, but I, I I very much do react to that point in the chapter about thinking about these as minimum minimum estimates of of variability and, and, and error. So that's sort of where I go. I do think that that that's important. I mean, the, the chapter makes a, a a number of good comparisons, showing, for example, if a very precise estimate is quote unquote statistically significant, but a very small value, and then you have sort of a lot of data support for a larger estimate, but it happens to, you know, overlap the, the null. Being able to represent that 
is really helpful. And I see this, I see this tripping up people too. When, when we're talking about, for example, they, they present their forest plot results and they're like, well, look, this is, this is significant. This is not significant. And I'm like, look at your actual results mm-hmm. and what they're actually telling you. The, the point estimates and the confidence intervals, it's just a little bit of fluctuation. Up on the, they're really telling you the, the same thing. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, but it, it is more of a relative thing, isn't it? Right? Like you, you don't ascribe any any sort of meaning to, to one, but it does help you compare estimates either within your studies or with other studies. Okay, so then along along that point, the last question that I want to ask you is, um, you know, if we want people to think a lot more about the variability of their estimates and and what confidence actually confidence intervals actually mean. Should we stop reporting point estimates completely and just report intervals and just, you know, sort of think of them as, you know, ranges of values that have varying compatibility with the data and get people to focus more on the interval and less on the point estimate? What are your thoughts on that? I know what smarter people than me would say, which what? is, which is, there is no, there are no smarter people. No, but what, what do these other true. people Most think? People are, are smarter than me. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a general general contention to de-emphasize the point estimate, right? Because basically, the point probability of that being true, if you're looking at, you know, a likelihood or whatever, is is no, is indistinguishable from the points around it, and 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 so so on and so forth. But on the other hand, right, <laughs> if you're doing a simple uh, estimation, and I think it might be mentioned in the chapter, right, is that that's the sample mean, that's meaningful, mm-hmm. right? That's, mm-hmm. It's your observed data. Maybe you don't want to conduct inference from it, but it's important. Uh, and then you go to the other proposed solutions, you know, the P curves and those sorts of things. The point estimate has a, a pre- presence there, right? Right. It does. Um, so, so to me, I mean, I, I, I still find the point estimate meaningful. Um, and I, I, yeah. So that that's what I would say. Haley, Haley, do you have a do you have a feeling on this one? What's your? Yeah. No, I completely agree with John on this one. That. Um, I find it meaningful and informative for the data that you have collected and you are presenting. And I think it's also informative in terms of aggregating data for comparison. It's very hard to compare intervals and make comparison statements about intervals. It gets very wordy and and difficult for somebody to process. I, I appreciate the value of a point estimate for what it is, which is just one value within that interval that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I have I have mixed feelings on this one. I mean, I I can see some logic for de-emphasizing the the point estimate because it is, you know, given all the assumptions that have gone into this, uh, you know, interval, the the point estimate is the it is the the measure of central tendency. It does describe a lot, but it's also, you know, there's a lot of variability around that, and I think we 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 put too much weight into it. On the other hand, I don't know that getting rid of of reporting on point estimates is going to solve those problems. Yeah, I agree with that to the extent that any point estimate, any p-value, any anything, people want to ascribe some degree of certainty, some degree of this is the truth. And I think that's where we go wrong sometimes with our point estimates that, you know, oh, I did this study. There's no bias, which is never true. And, you know, this is the true estimate of the relationship that I'm interested in. And and that's, right. you know, the interpretation part. I think we need to work harder on uh, understanding and conveying that that's not actually the truth, um, you know, in the universe. 
that you're measuring. I, I, I buy that. So John, as one last topic, and it's a point of continual frustration in my life, is uh, post hoc power calculations. You know, actually, I wouldn't even just say post hoc. I would just say power calculations in and of themselves are Ooh, throwing down the, the gauntlet here. I, I hate them. I will say with with as much certainty as I have, um, I hate them. And so I guess I'd like your thoughts on them because I'm always struck by how much weight people put on post hoc power calculations in assessing whether or not a study result is useful or whether or not a study result should be published uh, based on these types of power calculations. So, so I guess that's a very broad question, but I'd like to hear your two cents on this topic that frustrates me to no end. Post hoc power calculations, meaning that you finish the analysis and somebody asks you to do power calculations based on the estimates you've already produced. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I hear that it happens, but it's sort of thankfully more of a myth to me. I mean, I get asked to do power calculations all the time, but the more traditional sense, still meaningless, right? We have observational data that's already collected. You want to do power calculations, just do the analysis, right? Which is, but post hoc power calculations, I mean, I, there's a number of, of resources out there um, that, that people have put out about how those calculations are uh, just a transformation of, of the observations you already have, right? Does, does, to ask a question back, does that the, do those kinds of resources... Are they not convincing? Do they not help you make your case that what you're doing is not useful? To an extent. I, I So I find the whole process irritating where they ask me the question. I have to write a little paragraph. I have to be diplomatic and polite and send those resources, etc. Sometimes it works. I think sometimes they just give up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously she's very firm on her beliefs on this one. And so we'll just, we'll just let it go. But not always. Last week I submitted a second round of uh, responses to a reviewer who was steadfast that based on these results, I needed to produce a, a power calculation. Clearly, there was some misunderstanding going on there. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't tried either one of these, right? But one option is to give them the, the most basic kind of, this is, the, this is the expected, I don't know, estimate and standard error. Here's the power for that. Mm-hmm. And just be done with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is to go in the opposite direction, which is to take your data, simulate the effect size, and show through your simulations basically the exact same thing that you've already shown. Because basically, if, you're, if your power calculations are sophisticated enough based on the observed data at hand, you have will have run the analysis, right, right. already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know if they really want to see the power calculation, you can show, for example, uh, look, I, I, ran, I, ran, I ran this power calculation by simulation, 80% of them do not encompass this. Do not encompass the null. There you go. There you have it. Now, I, like I said, I haven't I haven't done this yet, but I mean, I can't think of another way to show them sort of how futile the the whole exercise is. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I agree completely that it's totally futile, and I also don't want to use my time to run simulation models to to prove to them how futile this whole exercise <laughs> is. I mean, I, I'm not going to be going out there and educating this reviewer because clearly they're writing this on a paper. There's some kind of expert or some they have some expertise in the field, and, and they it's not my job to educate them on that topic. Fair enough. Well, I don't think we're gonna gonna solve that one in this episode. Maybe we'll be able to come back on a, another episode. But John, I just want to thank you so much for for joining us. This was such a, a fun conversation. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. Really privileged to be on. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider 
Becoming a member membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting coming up this year. And it also gets you access to the SCR library where you can find all kinds of learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference, because if you like this podcast, we, we definitely think you'll like that one as well. Also, a reminder that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and the guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiological Research. So thanks again for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it and look out for our next episode. 